Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Lech Lecha, uh, most known for the opening verse uh, that Abraham is given the call, right? The To go forth, to set out, to go something, <laughs> somewhere. Um, and lots of rabbinic commentary on that. We don't generally spend very much time on what we're going to read today. Uh, most of us skip it when we're dealing with the stories of the patriarchs. Um, so we'll look a little bit at this different picture of Abraham, uh, and then we'll close with the uh, covenantal interestingness that happens in chapter 15. But I want first to recap where we've been um, because it is relevant to this to this Parsha. We started at Breshit. We started at Genesis. So we get this um, setting. We get the setting. If you're going to tell the story, you need to put the stage, the curtains, everything in place. You need the scenery. Creation, the creation narrative is not an attempt to explain how the world came to be. That is not the purpose of the creation narrative as we have it. The purpose is to set the stage. So we get the setting, and in that we get a little bit of discussion about that it's the one God that creates it. That's important, right? That's an Israelite innovation, that one force in this universe is a concentration of all the different forces that had been assigned to other gods and goddesses in the pagan world surrounding ancient Israel. So the Israelite innovation is that there's one force that contains all those other forces. Okay, So that, of course, is discussed in Bereshit. Then we get... Noah. We get the flood. Every ancient Near Eastern people has a flood narrative. You have to have the flood narrative because there's a flood. So you got to have the story about the flood. So, um, so we get our flood narrative. You can compare it directly to the Sumerian and Akkadian and Ugaritic stories. Very, very similar with a different Israelite message, of course. So that ends with what? How, what happens with Noah? What happens at the end of the flood narrative? They repopulate the earth. They repopulate the earth. And what happens? A covenant. A covenant. Who is the covenant made between? God, God and humanity. God and humanity. And what did we discuss last week? God and the earth. Lovely. So God, humanity, all living things, and the earth. Not generally how we tend to think of covenant, right? All right, so that was last week. This week, so, so you start to see the, right, the, the trajectory. This week, we are getting another discussion of a covenant. We are getting the introduction of a specific family. Noah is representative of all humanity. Um, the covenant, the original covenant that is still in place, by the way, uh, is with all of humanity, all living things, and the planet. And we have this other business. We have a particular family that now is going to get introduced. And this, of course, becomes the uh, story of uh, the patriarchs and the matriarchs from whom we mythically descend. So going from the cosmos to humanity, right, and living things after the flood, narrowing it further to Avraham. And uh, at this point, he's Avram. Yes, Abram. He's Avram, and he is married to? Sarai. 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 All right. So Sarai princess. Uh, a pedimento, probably, of lots of goddess stuff uh, in the pre-Israelite uh, literature that comes together in uh, Sarai as the matriarch. All right, so we are used to lech lecha. We're used to this idea that uh, that Avram is called to leave 
and to leave his uh, family, but what it, it, where they've been, but we forget that his whole family was on the move to begin with. His entire family, we were not told why. Terach, his father, were told that they are on their way, they're emigrating, and they stop at Haran and settle in Haran. We're not told why they're emigrating, but they're already on the move, which we also tend to forget. You know, we tend to think of Abraham having grown up in the same place where all of his grandparents and great-grandparents came from, and he's the one who leaves, when in fact his whole family is on the move. Well, was that typical of the time, more nomadic rather than... So it's an excellent point. It's an excellent question. It depends. If you're talking about a semi-nomadic pastoralist culture, yes, they would have moved, but they would have cycled through the same places. You grazed in the winter here, you grazed in the spring there. Think of Native Americans, right? Here was the summer feeding ground, and here was the winter place. Um, there were many settled agrarian communities as well in the Fertile Crescent. So definitely we get Avraham, the semi-nomadic pastoralist. Um, and there's tension always in Torah between settled agrarian life and semi-nomadic pastoralist life, right? There's always that, that push-pull in Torah. All right, so we're used to the patriarch being somebody who kind of sets out, who's in relationship to God. What we don't focus on a lot, I don't think, is this other side of Avram in his early life. He is devoted to his nephew, Lot. Devoted to his nephew. And we're going to see how devoted. Um, and deeply devoted to his wife, Sarai, and is not generally, in our estimation, a man of war or a hero. Um, so let's look at 14 and read this episode that is not exactly the picture we generally get of Avram. Somebody read. In the time of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elisar, Shedrolomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These, that was my best guess. There you go. You're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> These four waged war against Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shema, Ber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. Of course. <laughs> These all joined forces at the Valley of Sidon, now the Dead Sea. For 12 years, they had been subject to Chedorlaomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and his allied kings came and subdued the Rephaim in Ashterot, Karnaim, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva. Kiriataim and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as Il Paran by the edge of the wilderness. They then returned coming to Ein Mishpat, that is Kadesh, where they subdued the whole country of Amalek and the Amorites who dwell in the Hazazon Tamar. Am I done yet? No. <laughs> Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and arrayed themselves in battle formation against the enemy in the valley of Sidon, against Chedar Lomar, king of Elam, title king of Goam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. All right, have you ever heard this? No. Do you ever remember hearing this? We never talk about this. No. We just don't. So um, so there's this, this, what is going on right here? Like, So this is all the setup. This is a setup. There is a, there's a big king. Everybody's been living under the big guy. Right, And then there are vassal kings. This is the normal Canaanite city-state situation. Right, This is normal. You have the big guy, the big king, and then you have kings underneath who are vassal kings, serving the big king. There's a kingdom of five allies 
and four allies, and something's going to happen. What are we told? Everything seemed to be fine, and then for some reason, they're going to be kings who are rebelling. Okay. Why? We don't know. Okay. That's what they do. Lois says that's what they do. Okay. So for some reason, we're going to get the conflict. All right. Verse 10. Nobody's going to volunteer. Now the valley of Sidem was studded with tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some tumbled into them, and the rest fled to the hills. So they took all the possessions of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their food and went off. And as they went off, they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, with his possessions. He was a resident of Sodom. Okay, so what we didn't read was what happened a little bit earlier, which is that that Lot is getting impatient to be successful, and there's starting to be tension whenever you have big flocks and they're getting huge. You have tension around who gets to use what land. And so Avram, to keep the family peace, says, Lot, we're going to split, divide, so that we don't get into arguments, and you pick first where you want to go. Avram's the elder. Avram's the <laughs> uncle. Avram should have picked first, but doesn't push it. And says, whatever you want. I'm not, I'm not so interested. Whatever. And Lot chooses what? Where does Lot choose to live? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> we know what's going to happen with Sodom, don't we? Bad choice. So Lot, in his greed, falls in with a bad crowd. Which we already know earlier on, they're wicked sinners there. Certainly, they are wicked sinners. Certainly. So Lot chooses poorly, chooses based on greed, if you will. uh, And he's in Sodom and winds up being taken as part of this uh, conflict that's going on. He and his possessions have now been taken. All right. 13. A fugitive brought the news to Abram the Hebrew, who was dwelling at the terebinths of Mamre the Amorite, kinsman of Eshcol, and Aner, these being Abram's allies. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he mustered his retainers born into his household, numbering 318, and went in pursuit as far as Don. At night he and his servants deployed against them and defeated them, and he pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the possessions. He also brought back his kinsman Lot and his possessions and the women and the rest of the people. Go on. When he returned from defeating Shedor Laomer and the kings with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavet, which is the valley of the king. And King Melchizedek of Salem, Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him, saying, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your foes into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Go on. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, I will not take so much as a thread or a sandal strap of what is yours. You shall not say it is I who made Abram rich. For me, nothing but what my servants have used up. As for the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their share. Okay. That's amazing. So this is this is a portrait that we don't often see. It's a period in Avram's life that we generally skip over. We generally lech lecha set out. God makes a promise. Now we have this special relationship, and then how are we going to have a son? And we go right on to the the Hagar Sarai big drama family fertility offspring next year. Right? We skip over. This stuff about Avram as a patriarch. So Avram is a big guy. 
He's a big guy in the region. He's a player. He hears that Lot has been taken. If you look at the geography as it's described, Avram is living outside the region of conflict. He has no reason to get involved in this. This is not his fight, right? And in the ancient world, just like in the world today, if you go out to participate in a fight, you risk death. And you risk losing everything. If you lose, you're toast, right? This is, you ride out to battle with everybody in your clan and you lose or your side loses, you're done. You're slaves. Your women, children, everybody's carried off, right? So this, we, 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 oh, and he went, and he, this is a huge deal. He hears that load has been taken and he gets his folk girded, right? He, he has them arm and he goes. He could have left Lot to his fate. Uh, Amy, is this the first time that Abram is introduced as a monotheist? Introduced as a monotheist? Say more. Well, he, he pledges to God on high. You know, is, that, is it already understood that there was one God? Or... So it's important to remember, and we'll get there, um, in a minute, but it's important to remember that um, he's using the same language that Malchi Tzedek is using. Malchi Tzedek says El Elyon. So it is not necessarily the one God that Abraham is talking about. Because there's no predicate to this earlier than this. It's, so there, he just introduced. He, he's using the same language that Malchi Tzedek is using. So we're, we're going to look at what that language is. So Avram might mean it, but it's not obvious. Like it's not like okay, what did he just say? Yeah, right. The one God. What's that? Right. But so he refers to Adonai. So, so all right. So a we have to look at the Hebrew. We have to look at the Hebrew to find out what's going on, um, which we're going to do. So a fugitive brings the news to what is he called? Avram Ha'ivri, Abraham the Hebrew. Odd, right? So he's already known in the region as Avram Ha'ivri, Abraham the Hebrew, who is living Be'elone Mamre at the Terebinths of Mamre, also very well known in the region. You don't have to say, you know, those trees over by the 405 before you cross the 10, right? You know, all you have to say is the Terebinths of Mamre and everybody knows what you're talking about. So he's, and it's, we're, we're talking about around Hebron, right? So, so above Beersheba, below other stuff, right? So we're, we're at Hebron, and he's, and he's told that his kinsman has been taken captive. He musters his retainers born in his household, numbering 318. That is a large force. He's taking everybody. 300 people he's taking and pursues. He goes all the way to Dun. Where's Dun? Up north. Right? That is a long ride. That is a long ride. So they pursue as far as Dun. Right? They are not messing around. It's not just get out. It's get out of the region. Right? They've, they've whooped them. Right? So he defeats them, and he pursues them as far as Chova, north of Damascus. He's not messing around. Don't and don't come back, right? He brings back all the possessions. When you win, you plunder. You bring back booty, right? Half the point of war, frankly, is booty, right? So he brings it back and brings back Lot, and all of Lot's possessions. So he saves everything that Lot has. And the women, right? So nothing's been lost. And the rest of the people that were part of right, what the household. When he returns from defeating this king and his allied kings, 
the king of Sodom comes out to meet him in the valley. This is a big deal. Avram is the conquering hero. He is a big deal. So much so that the king of Sodom comes out to meet him. When the local king comes out to meet you, you are a big deal. King Machi Tzedek of Shalem brings out bread and wine. Right? So Sodom, we know about them. Does he bring anything out with him? No, he does not. Because we know about those people in Sodom. Um, but Machi Tzedek of Shalem brings bread and wine. He is a priest of whom? God knows high. El Elyon. Who's El? Who's El? What God? A God. A God. It's not just A God. Who's El? The Egyptian God? Nope. The head of the Canaanite pantheon is El. Really? Hmm? El is the chief God of the Canaanite pantheon. There's lots of gods in Canaan. You got boys and girls and this one and that one. El is the big one. The Canaanites Zeus. The Canaanites Zeus. Yes. Jupiter. Yes. Okay? So I mean, that's normal. You have a pantheon, of course. Duh. Like everybody knows that. So you have to have a you have to have somebody who's in charge of all the gods, right? And the big god in this case is El in Canaan. So it is no wonder that Early Israel calls God what? El. You got, you got to. You have to. The tree becomes a symbol of Christmas. You have to. If you want the pagans to participate in your December business uh, that's now about Jesus, you better give them a tree or forget it. Right? They need their pagan winter holiday. You want to revalue it and call it the birth of the light, the sun? Fine. But not without a tree. Right? You can't do business without a tree. So, of course, God in early Israel is El. Of course. Or you're not going to get your pagans. Right? They're not going to convert to this crazy mono what? Yud hey vav what? Like that you can't see. There's no representation. Wait, what? Okay, if it's L, okay, whatever. <laughs> so El Elyon, Elyon was. We have attested in ancient Near Eastern literature. Elyon is another god. There's El and Elyon. El being big guy. And Elyon, Most High God. Two different gods. You worship El, you worship Most High God, you worship Astarte, you worship Ishtar, you, well, they're the same actually. Uh, you know, you, you, were, you, you got it all going. You, you, different gods do different things for you. Different regions give rise to different gods. El and Elyon attested separately in the literature of the region. They are conflated by Israel. To be El Elyon, El the Most High. As a Elyon becomes a descriptor of El, meaning Yudhevavhe, right? But that evolves. That evolves in the region. Malchitzedek is not a monotheist. Malchitzedek is a high priest. A priest king, often uh, in this region, the priest was the king. The king was the high priest, which is really, if you're going to do it, the smartest way to do it. <laughs> right? If you're going to be the queen, you might as well be the high priestess. Because otherwise, you, you have a competing power, right? Think of who crowns the kings of Europe and queens of Europe. Who crowns them? The archbishop. The church crowns the kings and queens. What is that communicating? They're higher. They're above. You reign by our authority. Right? And always that tension between church and monarch. 
From the beginning of Israelite anything, they were separate things. The priesthood far anteceding the monarchy. Are we clear about that? Right? Think Mishkan, think tabernacle, right? Portable shrine. The priesthood antecedes the monarchy. But they are separate things, not so in Canaan. So your priest king, Machitedek, um, comes out, and we have this attestation. We think, if you look at the, again, the literature of the region, you get this Melech Tzedek business, right? What's Melech? King. What's Tzedek? Righteous. Ha! Yes. So, why would somebody want to be called righteous king? What does that mean? Who cares if you're righteous, you're king? If you're the king and the priest, who cares if you're Tzedek? What else could it mean? Just. You're just. So you have a reputation as being righteous, as being just. Okay. Maybe. What else could this mean? It's a combination of the priesthood and the kingship. So maybe. Don't read it as being about my character if I'm king. Read it differently and what does this become? It's just that you're king. I am the rightful queen of this region. Right? It's not that I am just. I am righteous. It's that I am the righteous queen. Anybody want to question who should be queen? I'm the true queen of Acadia, Sumeria. Okay. So... So possibly a designation used of kings in the region, tzedek meaning the righteous one, the one who deserves to be king, or is the only right king for the region. Um, we don't know. So in other words, it may not be a proper name. So whatever it is, it is the king of Shalem and brings out wine and bread uh, a priest also of El Elyon and blesses Avram. Baruch Avram Le'el Elyon. Blessed be Avram to God Elyon. Kone Shamayim Ba'aretz, creator of heaven and earth attested elsewhere in the ancient near east only as creator of the earth interestingly enough why why does the israelite version add heaven do you think because Breshit, the beginning of genesis says that god created the heavens and the earth okay but if we already have that and generally you talk about El being the one who cones the earth. Why add heaven? Why change the, the, the language? It's the gods of the heaven and the gods of the earth. Our God is creator of all, all creation. So moving away from El and El Yon, moving away from a God that is the God of the heaven and the God of the sea and the God of the earth, right? It is, it is reinforcing monotheism. This crazy idea that one God, Kone's Shamayim Ba'aretz, interesting that it's put in the mouth of the king priest of El El Yon. Isn't that also a way of saying everything? Yes. Uh, like day and night? Yes. Left and right, I mean, up and yes. down. It's heaven and earth. Yes. That means there's nothing that's not part of that. Correct. <laughs> the absolute transcendence. Margo. Um, how does this fit into um, our liturgy? Because I know there's no Ah, lovely. Nice. Nice, Margo. El Elyon fell into disuse. The only place we see it, already by the time of the writing of the Torah, it's not used anymore. The only place we see it is here, and we see it in the Psalms. So we see it in poetry. Liturgical use of El Elyon remains. 
Poetry and liturgy by its very nature tends to be conservative. Right? It's the place we it's the place we use old language that has fallen into disuetude. Only really in poetry and in liturgy. Same thing's been going on for thousands of years. So El Elyon is still attested in liturgical places like the Psalms. Wasn't it also the beginning of the Amidah? Which is Therefore, it makes it into our liturgy as well. Interesting that even by the time of Torah, it's not used. But we use it every day. <laughs> right? Three times a day. The irony of that. Um, so th- this is the El Elyon that we get in the opening brachot of, yes, the Amidah. This may be a... a- Digression, but it, I just um, I, I don't know a lot about all this. I have a question: Is is it possible that the idea to unify all these different gods into one god was that to tamp down conflict? Was that to change the nature of the way human beings felt separate? Is that I mean? So it, it, let's say that it wasn't true. Let's so, say that it was a that right. there was a reason. So it's reason. it's always a dangerous. You know, I'm trained as an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist, uh, in my undergraduate life. Um, And it's a dangerous thing to ask why about the evolution of a culture, the evolution. I mean, because. All right. But but having said that, if you read Karen Armstrong, she talks about the axial age. And in the axial age, she believes, and other scholars with her, she's just one of the ones who's publicized it the most. Um, in the axial age, there is a movement worldwide towards a conflating of all those different deities into one force, one being. It hap- we see it in Egypt. Where do we see it in Egypt? Do you remember this? Ankenaten, the pharaoh who wants one god, that Ra becomes, the sun god becomes the one supreme deity, and he is drummed out of town. All of his statues are desecrated. Why? Because the priests would be out of work. (laughs) Where's the priest of Isis supposed to go? If there's only one God, it is not popular with the functionaries of those temples to the other gods and goddesses, right? Very bad for business. So, Athena, you know, who's going to serve the Vestal Virgins? What are they going to do if there's only, what's his face? Uh, Zeus. All right, so there is a movement within all societies, she suggests, towards this idea of all of those gods becoming one. And we then see that expression in lots of different places. Early Israel is one of them, but that it's happening everywhere. So that's one theory, is that kind of humanity, I'm careful when I use the word evolves, like I don't, I don't want to put a judgment on that, but it seems that humanity, if you go with Karen Armstrong, was ready to think about things a little differently, and you see it popping up in lots of different places. Um, and when I say at the same time, we're talking, you know, when you're looking at spans of thousands of years, the same time can be within 500, 1,000 years of each other. I was just going to ask about, does she identify the axial age uh, chronologically? Yes, here. No, no, Yes, here. Yes, this is the axial age. We don't know when that is. Oh, when is that happening? The second millennium BCE. Third millennium BCE. 3,000 to 2,000 years before the year zero. Um, She believed, curiously, I love her thinking. She's amazing. And I, I too, digress for just a second because um, she believes we are at another axial age. And I hope she's right. So because when you look at ISIS 
and the Islamic State. We look at the world and we we freak out. I freak out when I look at the news, you know, and go, uh, "What is happening?" Right wing fundamentalist Christianity going crazy, you know, like. It's like hating gay people. It's like, what? What? Haven't we evolved like past all this craziness? And she and Bishop John Shelby Spong, people like that, believe these are the death throes of a system that is on its way out, that on some level we know that, humanity knows that, and there is the death throes, the last-ditch, desperate attempt to prevent this from happening is happening right now. That allows me to sleep better, right? So which is why I share it with you, um, is that I hope she's right. Moving so forward, yeah, moving what? Being more enlightened, you know, the, the, right. The, a non-strict constructionist age of... Correct. And Or maybe a... Of a non-hating God. Putting, you know, putting this away, any God? I mean, what women being educated. Imagine, like women being empowered, gay people being allowed to love whoever they want, gender not being binary anymore. You know, that, that, we're, that we are moving towards getting it, and we are seeing the very panicked and violent pushback, um, and that we are ready for we're, It's coming. And so I choose to believe it because otherwise it's a little too scary to contemplate the news. Um, so thank you for that digression. Um, so Avram, Avram is offered, right, by Malchitzedek. He pays Malchitzedek a tenth. It is, it is customary to tithe your, your winnings and share it with the, you know, some of the other allied kings involved. So this is not unusual that, that, um, Avram would have given of the spoils to this king. The interesting part is the king of Sodom says to Avram, give me the people and you take the possessions. I'm just interested in the human capital. You take all the stuff. You want it, fair and square. Give me, give me my human capital. You take the rest. What does Avram say? Not a thread. Or a sandal strap. I think that's so terrific. Uh, because it's so simple and plain and everybody has a sandal strap and a thread. At home. He's not going to touch it because he's not interested in the spoils of war. He's not interested in the spoils of war. Notice the subtlety of what he says, right? He says... I Harimoti Yadi, I lift up my hand El Yudhe Vavhe El Elyon. You hear it? I lift up my hand, meaning I swear by whom? Yudhe Vavhe El Elyon. Verse 22, creator of heaven and earth. So he is subtly communicating, David, yes. We're not going to argue. El Elyon, okay. Right? You know. But we're adding yud hey vav hey. So the reader knows that Avram knows and is saying it out loud. Does Machitzedek know what the heck yud hey vav hey who knows? He hears El Elyon. He knows that God, right? So everybody has their own gods. It's not going to upset Machitzedek that you worship Baal and you worship Ashtarte and I worship El Elyon. Fine, like we all have our... But Avram calls yod hey vav hey El Elyon. Okay. So it's... But we know that that's important that it says yod hey vav hey. We know as the Israelite reader, that's critical. Sarah? In an age now where the Holocaust art is still being litigated and hung on to, you, you think, you know, this was thousands and thousands of years ago, and this man would not take uh, from people that he had conquered. So it's, yes, so he is very different, right, from the Nazi mindset, you know, um, to plunder. And it, it goes further. He's saying no to reparations. I don't want your BMW. Keep your BMW. 
right? I, I, I'm not interested, and I made it on my own just fine in, in the Golden in Medina. I don't need your German cars, right? So he's saying, I am not in this for the money. I am not interested in the spoils. Then what did he do it for? His kids went back. This is about the importance of redeeming the captive. This is about risking his own life to redeem his nephew. And it's made explicitly clear. It could not be clearer. Not a thread, not a sandal strap. In case it wasn't clear, is he interested in? He's interested in only the life of his, of, of his family member. Um, but everyone else should take. There's nothing wrong with taking. He makes it very clear also. But everyone else should take their, their share. There's nothing wrong with having a nice life and a nice house. Depends who you take it from, right? So it depends how you come by it. So were these possessions, not only Lot's possessions that he got back, but also the possessions of the, cap, the former captor? Heck yeah. All their stuff. Like, Heck yeah. Big time. Interesting that, though, he did it. He said um, he doesn't want um, a sandal strap of what is yours. He's the one who got all this stuff. So what is he saying? In addition to, I'm not in this for the money, what else is he saying? Good reading. Well, I, I mean, it seems like it's... Who's he talking to? He's talking to the king. Of who? Of what? Of um, Sodom. Those wicked sinners. Oh. So what's he saying? Not only am I not interested, making clear I'm not interested in doing this for the money, but also... This is your stuff, though. But that's why he didn't, he didn't go out. I don't want anything of a, yours. But these are he. It sounds as though he went out representing the king of Sodom that, and took this step back for Sodom. They're on the same side. They're allies. Okay, because that was not good. He, they're he allies. To get Lot on his own. Five kings versus four kings, and so he's now allied okay. with these guys. Okay. He, um, and he's making it, but it's very clear. Torah's making it very clear that Avram wants nothing to do with Sodomite anything. Very clear. They were on the no Sodomite anything because they are wicked, evil sinners. And we're going to see how wicked and how evil they are that they do not protect who? People coming into their town. A guest. A guest. Let's be clear. This has nothing to do with homosexuality. It could not be clearer. What proves how vile and awful they are is they do not offer to protect a guest in their house. That is the main number one assumption of the ancient world is you are safe in your host's house. Your host is supposed to put his own life on the line. It is still this way. In a Bedouin, you go to the Bedouin communities, you sit in their tent, they will die defending you. And they offer up their guest to the mob. This is the proof of how depraved the city is. All right. And that text, of course, is mangled and also, misused. And I just wanted to say that's so interesting about the ethics of, you know, tainted money where the money comes from, whether, you know, if it's given, like, is is money donated to a cause? Are you able to take it if it comes from, you know, someone that's doing, got it out of, you know, bad, in bad, a bad way, or, you know, or the person is evil, or, you know, how we switched um, from the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel to the other, because that association was with, the Brunei, yeah, and everything whoever, the Sultan of Brunei, so it's just the wicked and evil yeah. Sultan of Brunei. Right? <laughs> um, so, so one thing I just want to add to that: yes, I think that question is being raised. I think Avram is making a statement, um, or at least scholars are reading a statement into it. Um, the The only thing I want to add is that he's already wealthy. So, so yes, he's doing the right thing. Yes, he doesn't want tainted money. And he's wealthy enough to be able to decline it, right? If he were starving, you know, if he were a mercenary, 
I don't, I don't know. But I mean, we're, we're not given that that situation. But go ahead. It raises issues, I think, in terms of modern war and who your allies are, and you know, here, you know, what motivations do you have to go after the same, the same goal, and how do you, you know, how do you evaluate who you're working with? It's it's not clear, and and in this we would say, that's okay. You can you can ally with Qatar on this thing, even though you think they're horrible in this other thing. It's a reality, right? It's the political reality. The, the enemy of my enemy is my erstwhile ally. Yeah, or, or things are, you know, it depends. You know, it basically it depends. Well, I want to go get Lot. I want to go save my nephew. So it, we can be on the same side right now. Wait. It, yes. I don't know. I think that's So, so this, this ends, this ends this episode, right, in the life of Avram, this, that we believe, scholars believe, is here in order to fill out the picture of who he is. He is accomplished at war. He is a conquering hero. Uh, he is respected in the region. He's a sheikh in the region. And he's righteous, right? He goes after, he puts his own life at risk for Lot, who hasn't exactly turned out to be the greatest of, you know, of relations, uh, and who owes Avram a lot, and, and Avram risks his life to do the right thing and declines any of the booty to make it very clear that, that he's not on the take. He's not interested in material um, wealth in, in the sense of war. So probably that's why we have this here. And now we're going to get chapter 15. Um, the scholars, as far as I, I have read and learned, uh, this stuff of chapter 14 likely was taken by the biblical um, author wholesale at, from another source, right? So it t- takes the whole source wholesale and drops it here. This is why we get these names and this, you know, that, that it, it comes intact from another source. It's its own document. Chapter 14, that whole business that we just did is its own document within the story of the patriarch Avram. So probably taken from another Avram tradition, you know, and just kind of cut and <laughs> lifted and put right here. Well, uh, up to this point, you really didn't have any clue that he was a warrior. Right. So uh, assuming that they, there was a reason for wanting to make him a warrior. What is the reason? What is the reason, Reuben asks, that the author would be interested in having the reader know that Avram is an accomplished warrior? Sarah? Respect. Respect. In the old world, yeah. you know, Liam Neeson movie, and that's what it makes me think. I'm going to go get my nephew, and, you know. <laughs> Rambo. <laughs> so there seems to be universally um, a, an amount of respect, fear, you know, whatever that comes with the warrior. But he's a righteous warrior. He's a righteous warrior. This is a very different Abram. Yeah than the one I'm accustomed to on Rosh Hashanah, <laughs> who says, God, you know, kill your son. Okay, I'm coming. <laughs> this is this is like a change of character here. It's very interesting that we don't generally incorporate this into our understanding of who he is. I think it's true. Well, there, there, there had to be some reason why God came to him in the vision. I mean, why? Why him? Why Avram? Because yeah. he's the patriarch. Well, yeah. but, but I'm just saying, it seems like this chapter we just read sort of was inserted there to motivate. Why him? Yeah. So, so that he's he he's deserving. Yeah. Got it. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Because because this is the story of our patriarch. So yeah, well, there, well, he has to be. Had to be a reason. He's got to be a Why? great guy. Just picked him out. You know, just threw the dart. The, the, the thing of the dart at the wall. And it is also why Sarai is so beautiful. 
right? That she, he's afraid she's going to be taken, and she is taken, and twice into Pharaoh's harem. She's so beautiful because she's the matriarch. The matriarch has to be beautiful. Why? It's a good story. Well, it's a good story, but why in the ancient world does she have to be beautiful? Shows that she's favored. It is a sign of divine favor. So, of course, the matriarch has to be gorgeous and has to have a miraculous fertility. It can't be regular fertility. Regular, right? She doesn't get pregnant at 23. Who cares about that? She's the matriarch. She has a miraculous fertility. Right? So Avram, if you're going to be the patriarch, you better be a warrior, and you better be good at it, and you better be righteous. And if you're going to be the matriarch, you got to be beautiful, and you got to have some kind of miraculous fertility thing going on. Yeah, of course, of course. So Avram, we get this, we get this, if you really look closely, and if you read the scholars who do look really closely at this development of this character, Avram, what we see is he gets, he gets a promise, and then it almost goes away. He gets a promise, and then he has to put his life at risk. How am I going to be the father of a great nation if I'm dead? Right? And then he gets a promise here, and then his wife is barren. And she's approaching 90, whatever, right? So, so there's this tension set up throughout the patriarchal narrative of a promise by God and then, but maybe not. A promise, maybe not. And so it's, it sets up this real tension. And, and Avram is told in just a minute by God, fear not, right? So it's not just kind of this, Okay, you're chosen, and now here you go. It, it's much more dynamic than that. When you say it's more dynamic, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking about this. Is it obedience, or is it look within yourself and make the moral decision at this stage? Or? Really? Or? But what is it? It seems like it's obedience. It's all of it. Are you kidding? This is Avram. It, it is faith in the face of desperate fear that it's not going to happen. And the reason I point out the dynamism is because it looks too much on Rosh Hashanah. It's too simple. We only read Rosh Hashanah, the binding of Isaac. And I think what we lose is the Avram that's afraid. The Avram that thinks it's not going to happen. And we lose that with the kind of, it looks like blind faith. Bring your son, kill him, okay. Right, you know, and that's what we too often we're left with this whitewashed stereotype that misses the very rich Torah picture of an Avram, like the rest of us. That's why it's here. Who? That's why we keep reading it anyway. Who? Okay, I trust. It's all going. It's, I think it's going to happen, and then we're like, maybe not. Struggle. We struggle. We struggle and we're afraid and we think it's going to be okay and then we don't trust and then we something happens and then it's complicated and then we risk and then can I risk? I don't know. Right? And is it worth it? I, I, do I live in a trustworthy universe or not? These are the biggest questions we ask. Is the universe good or not? You, you know what I mean? Do I live in a loving universe that's holding me at all times? Or is life a crapshoot? And I could be run over, God forbid, tomorrow. That's terrifying. And so we, we miss some of that when we just listen at Rosh Hashanah to, okay. All right, so we're going to get chapter 15. Somebody read. Sometime later, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. He said, fear not, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what can you give me, seeing that I shall die childless? And the one in charge of my household is Damasek Eliezer. Abram said further, Since you have granted me no offspring, my steward will be my heir. The word of the Lord came to him in reply that one shall not be your heir, none but your very own issue shall be your heir. 
He took him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he added, so shall your offspring be. And because he put his trust in the Lord, he reckoned it to his merit. Okay. So, <laughs> right? What does that mean? Um, Avram's act of faith makes him worthy of it being fulfilled is kind of the sense of the Hebrew. Um, I'm in so much trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Right. 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 So so for the Hasidic masters, you know, for the, the mystical tradition, it's exactly about that. It's about pointing to this as the paradigmatic choice to trust. Because it seems ridiculous, right? If you just take the proof, the evidence, it's absurd to think he's going to have an heir. It's absurd. And yet, he trusts. He has some kind of Faith that God will fulfill what God has shown him to be his future. This, for the rabbis, is the point. That we don't have a lot of good evidence. Unless and until we choose to trust, and then you can find the evidence everywhere. So, Carmen's nodding. Right? Yes. Um... Right. I made a big jump. Um, <laughs> That's where I jumped to. If we look, if Avram looks at the evidence, if we look at the evidence in our lives, we can find reasons to fear. Because there's, there's not a lot of proof that we live in a loving, trustworthy universe. Unless and until we make a decision to trust. And then when we make that leap of faith, you start to see evidence everywhere in your life that you, in fact, live in a loving universe and a God who lives into holding and supporting you at every turn. Carmen? But but that's not true in every period of history. If you look at the Holocaust era, if you look at people living in Israel right now, no. You had people going into the gas trusting. Trusting. Yeah. So I don't think that's true. I think there's a choice to be made always, regardless of the circumstances, for an on franc to say, right now it's dark. I do not believe this is evidence that therefore the human race has failed. But is that good? Ha 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 ha. Because some people, some historians say, that had the Jews been less trusting, they would not have waited for the uprising in Warsaw. It would have happened way before. So I, th- I want to be very careful in my language because this is a podcast. I want to be very clear. I am not suggesting that trust meant God will save us from this. It means that this is a dark period. These are circumstances that should never exist on the planet. It does not therefore negate my belief that humanity is good at heart and that there is a loving God at the center of this universe. I will not see it manifest in my life because the evil I am confronting is too large. It does not mean there is not a loving center that's what I'm saying. Some people chose to affirm even in their, and still do, right? Every day, no matter how horrific their circumstances, they do not accept that as proof, therefore, that humanity's evil or the world, is, you know, that there's no God. How could there be, right? There are people who make Avram's choice every day. Is it good? That is a whole very interesting question, Sarah. That is a very, very interesting question. And for me, I 
would never put myself in the position of judging somebody who's in those circumstances, right? I, good, bet. But also, it, it fills a deep need for people. But what I do think is people who trust that fully, in my experience, are happier people and are not embittered by what happens. That, to me, is a pretty darn good argument for choosing this way. You look at the Dalai Lama, somebody like that, he radiates serenity, but it's not naivete. There's, there's a difference, right? And, and I want some of that, I got to tell you. I would love some of that. Bert, were you trying to say something? Well, this is a slightly different situation, though, at least as the text, because Avram is actually supposedly talking right to God. He's not guessing. He's not feeling disconnected. He's <laughs> actually having a, having a conversation. He believes he's having a conversation with God. So do the people who worship every single day. No, no, I agree. I'm saying there is no difference for the tradition. It, it, the tradition believes we all are talking to God every. You know, and there is no doubt for them that there, that that is a relationship and that God is listening, right? We, we know right with the omniscient narrator that this, in fact, is God, and but and faith is all about believing that that is in fact so now as well. Yes, like when people say to me, you know, do you believe in God? Right? You know, it's like, no, I don't believe in God. I experience God. So for me, there is no doubt, right? Because it's not. I'm not leaping over doubt to get to and that experience, and it's a choice to see it that way as well. I also own that, right? That that's a choice. How can you not believe in Thank you. Well, that's my point. That's my point. You just put yes. Yeah, I knew there were hands. <laughs> Blanche? Really shaken to think that we're facing another Holocaust from the Middle East. And what do we do? We've been talking about it. But it's, it's it's a very frightening thing and I think given our history we're not going to sit around and underestimate the, the danger I hope I hope that is something our recent history has taught us like Sarah was saying earlier is that we need to get on this now building the relationships and the allies and the you know whatever needs to happen in order to respond to what is a very, very scary set of realities. Right. Let's hope she's right, Ruben. I'm with you 100%. Pam? I was going to say that um, Abram is told, I'm going to make you a great nation. But he doesn't have the rest of the story yet. So he, we find out at last uh, Parsha that, his, uh, that Abraham has a few brothers and one of the brothers died. And that Lot is his nephew. So when he goes out, he takes a lot of people with him, as we see, and Lot. He doesn't know how this great nation is going to come about. Maybe it's going to be uh, through his nephew. Maybe it's going to be, he asks, is it going to be from one of my servants? And so here, he's asking twice. He's saying, Ve'yomer Avram. And I see this as kind of a, there's a pause there. He's saying, he's talking to God, um, you know, I'm childless, um, and he's waiting for an answer, and I, I just hear a lot of silence. So again, he speaks the same thing. He said the same word, even though here it's saying, he added further. No, he's using the same language. After no response, uh, is it going to be my servant? You know, like, give me something here. So I think that's part of why he took loads of, you know, whose character is very questionable, to say the least. And, um, and, because he doesn't know how, how, how am I going to be a great nation? And then is willing to part with him. Yeah. I mean, so we also, 
I think, read right over the deep sadness of if I'm not, if I don't have a child and my nephew is the only shot I have, and then he's a jerk, right? We, we, we even missed the poignancy for Avram of now he's broken up with Lot. And that's really hard, right? So, so now it's going to be the head of my household, my, my servant? It's going to be like, really? Yeah, house is house. How, really? And we don't have the story. We don't have the whole story. Right. Well, right? I think it's a really important point that, that you raise, is that when we choose trust, when we choose faith, we don't have any clue of the story, how that's going to unfold. All, all we know is we are called into the next step, right? The next thing. We have no idea. Did you have any idea you'd be walking around right now? No, you did not. But you took the next step. We are called just to do what we know, what we believe is the next thing, and it is none of our business, and I mean that in a good way, it is none of our business how it's going to happen and how it's going to unfold. It, once we are truly in that place of yes. of, of trust. But yet he's responsible that he had a son with Hagar. Uh, so, then, yeah, that, that's that's later. We're, we're not going there today. No. <laughs> Rabbi, if you don't know okay. how it's going to happen, let's, oh, sorry. Yeah? if you don't know how the nation is going to happen, then, and if you trust, that it is, then it calls you into very high ethical behavior with everyone you come in contact with because it could be this way, it could be that way, it could be your servant's son, it could be Lot. So you have to be righteous 100% of the time, right? So if we stay open, that I have no idea how it's going to unfold, you're exactly right. Then I need to treat every encounter as the possible next opening to what's going to happen and however I interact with you can determine does it become the next step towards or not we are largely in charge of are we helping to open it up or are we shutting it down you've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades California for more information go to our website www.ourki.org